So the scripture this morning is Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, or I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. The word of the Lord. Before I begin this morning, just a word of thanks from our family. Uh, first of all, um, uh, many of you gave uh, for the time Joe will spend in Seattle here beginning the 25th of the month for what they call a cyber knife procedure. It's targeted radiation on the lesions on our liver. And they've made those arrangements, so thank you. But also this week... Uh, kind of an unexpected turn that I think, you know, all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And and Jill ended up having to have a colostomy. But the, the great thing about that, it's going to be bring her relief from some issues she's dealt with for the past year and a half. So we are grateful. We're grateful for your prayers. Um, Julie sent a picture of Mike and Jill on their front porch this morning, and Jill was dressed and ready to go to church today. So, yeah, praise the Lord. She's Any of you who have ever taken a long car trip with children have heard these questions or questions like them. How much longer? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? Uh, When our daughters were kids and we were going to drive a long distance, usually uh, that was, we raised our girls in eastern Oregon and our family vacations were to Colorado to visit family here because that was the most affordable thing to do. We didn't do Disneyland and that kind of thing. We came and stayed with family. 
And it was a rather lengthy trip. And so to uh, at least uh, reduce the number of those kinds of questions that would be asked, we would make a bed in the back of the car, leave in the evening, drive all night. I drove all night. Everybody else slept. Um, we got here in the morning. The girls would bail out, have fun with their cousins. Dad would go take a nap. You know, we're asking some of those same questions now, not because of a car trip, but because we're looking at the events that are happening in our nation and our world, and we're thinking about what Jesus said in regards to the end of the age, and we're saying, how much longer? When are we going to get there? Are we there yet? John Wesley White said this, The prophecy of future events occupies approximately one quarter of all scripture. The teaching of the coming, uh, second coming of Jesus is mentioned 1,845 times in the Bible with 318 references in the New Testament. Seven out of ten chapters in the New Testament make reference to the second coming. Now, I'm just trusting in what he said. I didn't look up all those things. I didn't think I had time to look up 1,845 references this week. But, but if I, I think if I took a poll of everyone here and asked you what your main question about biblical prophecy was, for many it would be, are we living in the end times right now? In other words, are we there yet? And the answer to this question is, are you ready? Are you? <laughs> Look at the Bible. Look at history. Look at current events, and then you decide. You can read a book written by a trusted theologian or pastor, but if you've done any of that kind of reading, you know that perspectives and opinions on this subject are so varied that it's difficult to decide whose position you want to accept. I mean, you read ten books on the end times or the second coming of Jesus or prophecy, and you're going to get ten different opinions. And we know that throughout history and even recently, there have been many well-meaning teachers, pastors, and Bible students who have taught that in their generation, the second coming of Christ would occur. And I'm sure that these were proper warnings. We need to be heads up about this, don't we? It's scriptural to be vigilant. However, there are others that have erroneously predicted the actual day and time that Jesus' second coming would occur. Steer clear of those guys. The Bible's pretty clear about this. In Matthew 24, verse 36, later in this same chapter, Jesus says, Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. You know, I, 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 not even just the second coming, but, you know, when these events that uh, apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature refers to, like in the book of Daniel and Revelation, you know, when these things will happen and 
we've got authors who have said, just boom, 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 this is it. Here's when it's... And, and I always look at uh, the book of Daniel, and God laid this stuff out before him. Uh, remember, God said, um, Daniel, you're highly favored in my eyes. God said that about Daniel. And when Daniel said, what's all this mean? God says, basically, none of your business. <laughs> it's going to happen in the way I've planned, but Daniel, you're not going to know how all this lays out and fits together. And so I really have always been cautious thinking about that, about these authors who write about this stuff and think they've got it all figured out. And I think you should be cautious too. Now, if you want to buy into a particular author, that's your business. But Jesus did say of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Still, there are people that continue in their vain attempt to be modern-day prophets about these things. Um, I, I think I mentioned this guy before. His name was Edgar Wisenant. He sold 4.3 million copies of his book dealing, detailing why Christ would come in 1988. Do you remember that? 88 reasons why Jesus will come in 1988. Only he said it would... He said at that time it would happen uh, in September because that's when the, the Jewish... Uh, celebration of Rosh Hashanah takes place. That was his... He figured that all out. Um, well, December 31st, 1988 came and no Jesus showed up. So the next year he sold 30,000 copies, a substantial downturn here from 4.3 million. Maybe folks were figuring out. The next year he sold 30,000 copies of a book he wrote detailing... It was, it was 89 reasons why Jesus will come in 89. Strike two. He didn't try for three strikes. Um, well, we know that 89 came and the Messiah did not return. So, if you don't get it right the first time, you just try, try again, right? Or at least that was his thinking, at least one more time. So, after missing twice... And he was a retired NASA engineer, he, by the way, who lived in a one-room shack outside of Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is what he said. I can stand in front of the Lord and say I gave it my best shot. Um, but you know what God says in the Scripture about prophets who prophesy amiss, don't you? Okay, they're false prophets. So, it would have been far better for him uh, to shoot for reading the Scriptures before making a fool of himself. Acts chapter 1 verse 6 is another text warning us not to set dates or times. The disciples asked Jesus after he was resurrected, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority, the Father. So we know that not even Jesus himself knows when the Father is sending him to return. And Alexander McLaren said this, The primitive church thought more about the second coming of Jesus Christ than about death or about heaven. 
They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called a grave, but for a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were not watching for the undertaker, but for the upper taker. The people of the New Testament thought that Christ's return was imminent. Um, and yet, 2,000 years ago, and we're still waiting, aren't we? So, let's look at what Jesus said about the signs of his return. And the first is found in verses 4 and 5 of this passage that Dean read, and it talks about deception. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claim, claiming I am the Christ, and they will deceive many. And we, we've seen that happen. I mean, it's happened throughout history. It, it happened in Jesus' day. There were come, those who came claiming to be the Messiah. I know in the Jewish tradition there have been rabbis at times that had such powerful influence that people thought that they were possibly the Messiah. And then we've seen in our own culture, uh, well, when we lived in, and I pastored in Eastern Oregon, there was the Bagwan that lived down at, I don't remember, the Bagwan Sri Rajanishi. Do you remember him? He had a, yeah, uh, he had a compound out of Antelope, Oregon. And um, that thing fell apart. In fact, uh, we benefited from that. That's where we got our church bus. So, I think we got a pretty good deal on it, too. The David Koresh's, people like that, um, who've risen out, Sun Young Moon, remember him. Um, People like that who have risen up and basically claim to be God or God or a Savior or prophet of God and... Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, it says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. While evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And certainly I think we see that happening, not only in the past, but right now today. Uh, George Gallup calls it uh, the religion of me and thee. Along with the hunger, he says, for experience over knowledge, it's contributed to a tremendous diversity of beliefs, many of which are antithetical to biblical principles. These unhealthy attitudes have crept into the church as evidenced by the following results of a survey of church leaders by researcher George Barna. And, and most of the time I find these statistics pretty disappointing. 53%, these, these are church leaders now, 53% believe that there are moral truths that are absolute. Absolute. So that's good. Okay? 43% say there is no such thing as the Holy Spirit. Excuse me? Okay? 33% believe that Jesus never had a physical resurrection. Now, our, our faith hinges on the cross and the resurrection. So how do you have Christian faith if you don't believe that there was a physical resurrection? I don't... 19% believe that Jesus sinned while on earth. Well, there goes a sacrifice for our sins right out the window, right? Um, And the Barna Group has uncovered some of the ways people in America are being deceived today. Now, this is more of a general... Uh, poll. This is not just 
church leaders thank the Lord. 59% do not believe in Satan. I think we realize that there are a lot of people out there that don't believe that there's Satan, a real Satan. 51% believe praying to dead saints is beneficial. Uh, 35% believe that you can communicate with the dead. 50% believe salvation is earned and not a gift. So you can, there goes grace. Um, 75% believe people are born neither good nor evil. They make a choice between the two as they mature. 44% believe the Bible, the Quran, and the Book of Mormon are all different expressions of the same truth. 54% believe truth can only be discovered through logic, human reasoning, and personal experience. Yeah, I know. If it didn't make you laugh, it would make you cry, though. And, and other deceptions come from spiritual leaders who attempt to influence people with their point of view regarding the issue of things like we just heard Kathy Roberts talk about a couple of weeks ago. You know, I, I was reading, um, you know, again, we know about the SCOTUS decision regarding Roe versus Wade. and I, So there have been some pastors speaking out. Of course, the mainstream media is glad to publish what these pastors have to say. One of them said, and I believe, here, deception. A pastor asserted that the pro-life movement is the beginning of a demonic agenda. At a church in Atlanta, the congregation discovered that a person doesn't have a deeper understanding of the issue if one thinks that abortion is murder. A clergy said, Some view abortions as babies being killed, as I once did, before praying for a deeper understanding. God help us and God help them. And we all know the issue of subjective truth. Um, there are not just one, but many truths out there. And that's, an, that's one that baffles me. I don't know. How do you figure this out? Anybody know how you figure this out? When you just choose your truth and what's true for you is not true for me and what's true for me is not true for you. And uh, obviously there are a lot of people that seem to be okay with that. So there's a lot of deception in our world right now, amen? Uh, the second thing Jesus refers to is worldwide birth pains. Verses 6 through 8, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. In Romans 8.22, the Apostle Paul wrote, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Historians all agree that the 20th century was the unpar unparalleled in the scale of its human misery created by other humans. No period has witnessed the escalation of wars as did the 20th century. The Red Cross has estimated that over 100 million people have been killed in wars when, since the 20th century began. 
It's not including the genocide of Russians opposed to Stalin, the Jews exterminated during the Holocaust, Idiomines or Pol Pots or Mousy Tongues, evil and bloodthirsty regimes. Regimes doesn't even include those. Up until 1914, war had never been universal, but in both World War I and World War II, total war was raged. Since World War II, there have been numerous major wars and hundreds of rebellions and revolutions. The death toll in conflicts since the end of World War II has topped 23 million. But I just think about, I was born right at the end of the Korean War. And I remember Vietnam pretty clearly. Not that I was involved in it, but I was old enough during that whole time to remember and the news reports and we've got people here today who are involved in that conflict. And just think of all the things that have happened since then. And Ukraine, the war in Ukraine happening right now, those are the major ones we know about. And then we hear about these other things, uh, rebellions and revolutions that don't even make the, the news anymore because it's not newsworthy enough or not enough blood being shed or whatever excuse they have for not mentioning it. And think about what's gone on in the Middle East since Israel became a nation in 1948. Basically unending. Uh, Dr. Charles, and I think his last name was Malik, he was the first president of the UN General Assembly, said this, regarding what happen, happen, is happening, has happened and is still happening in the Middle East, to dismiss the present conflict between the children of Isaac and Ishmael, the Israelites and Arabs, as just an ordinary politico-economic struggle is to have no sense whatsoever of the holy and the ultimate in history. And then in this list of things that will be happening. Jesus predicted in verse 7, and there shall be famines and earthquakes in various places. On March 27, 1964, Alaska was devastated by a massive earthquake measuring 8.4 on the Richter scale. And in the 30 years after that, after the great Alaska quake, there had been as many major earthquakes as in the entire previous 2,000 years of world history. Things are speeding up, folks. The World Almanac tells us that there are only 21 earthquakes of major strength between the years 1000 and 1800. Between 1800 and 1900, there were 18 major earthquakes. In the next 50 years, between 1900 and 1950, there were 33 major quakes. And between 1950 and 1991, there were 93 major earthquakes, almost tripling the number of the previous half century and claiming the lives of 1.3 million people around the world. The dramatic increase of severe earthquakes has led many scientists to predict that we are entering a new period of great seismic disturbances. Sorry, that makes me laugh. Really. Between 2000 and 2020, there were, this is 36,000 637 earthquakes of magnitude 5 or more. 
Jesus was right. Famine. According to World Vision, 690 million people worldwide are undernourished. Almost half the child deaths around the globe are related to malnutrition. There are currently 22 countries that are listed as hunger hotspots, places where people are at risk of starvation unless they receive immediate life-saving support. Famine. And now we're hearing about food shortages in our own country. Persecution, verse 9. You will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. And then in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. More Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined. That's a statistics from, from Open Doors USA. And they go on to say this, while Christian persecution takes many forms, it is defined as any hostility experienced as a result of identification with Jesus Christ. From Sudan to Russia, from Nigeria to North Korea, from Colombia to India, Followers of Christianity are targeted for their faith. They are attacked. They are discriminated against at work and at school. They risk sexual violence, torture, arrest, and we know death. In the last year, there have been over 340 million Christians living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. 4,488 churches and other Christian buildings attacked. <laughs> we could add to that number just by what's, by what's been happening in our own country recently, can't we? 4,277 believers detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or imprisoned. Um, and we're seeing, uh, you know, we've had a good. Haven't we? We have it good. We have it easy. But I think the face of changes, we're seeing the, the face of things regarding Christianity in our country change. And I, I don't know who said this, and some of you probably read the same kind of thing, and we've seen it happen uh, throughout history. It happened with uh, the Jews in Germany. It was this process of, first of all, they were criticized, and then they, that moved to being marginalized and finally criminalized. And, and, and that's a process that's happened with Christians, Jews, maybe others of different uh, race or sects or whatever throughout history. And frankly, I see that, a move toward that in our own country right now. And what was that I read to you from uh, uh, Timothy here a bit ago about if you choose to follow Jesus, you will be persecuted in some way at some point along the way. 
And then Jesus moves on um, in verse 10. He talks about falling away. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And we can see this clearly in the decline in church attendance, I think, is one indicator. Um, there are a lot of statistics out there that talk about what's happened as far as the decline in those who are affiliated with or attend church. According to Gallup, <clears throat> U.S. church membership was 70% or higher from 1937 through 1976, falling modestly to an average of 68% in the 70s through the 90s. The past 20 years or more now have seen an acceleration in the drop-off <clears throat> with a 20 percentage point decline since 1999 and more than half of that change occurring since the start of the current decade that we're in. And this is due largely to an increase in those who claim no religious affiliation at all. They're referred to as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N, N-O-N-E-S. No, I mean they're not Jew, they're not Catholic, they're not Protestant, they're not Muslim, they're not Hindu, they're just not anything, zero. No religious affiliation of any kind. And in fact, I had a couple of years ago, I had the church board read a book entitled The Rise of the Nuns so we could gain an understanding of what's happening in that regard. This is one of those uh, sermons where you kind of get carried away. stop at point five stop at point five and I will continue next week because we still we want to do communion this morning together hey we have Jesus we have Jesus um, I don't know who will be serving us with our communion servers um, just hang on to that outline if you don't we'll have more for you next week and we'll we'll finish this up you'd go ahead and begin to distribute the, the elements. Just a reminder, you need not be a member of our church to partake of communion. And please hold the elements and we will all partake together. And we need to be mindful of this as well. The scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, tells the story of a prodigal daughter who grows up in Traverse City, Michigan. Disgusted with her old-fashioned parents who overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts, etc., she runs away. 
She ends up in Detroit where she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. The man with the big car, she calls him boss, recognizes that since she's underage, men would pay a premium for her. So she goes to work for him. Things are good for a while. Life is good, but she gets sick for a few days and it amazes her how quickly the boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She turns a couple of tricks a night and all the money goes to support her drug habit. One night while sleeping on the metal grates of the city, she begins to feel like a woman of the, she begins to feel less like a woman of the world and more like a little girl. She begins to whimper, God, why did I leave? My dog back home eats better than I do now. She knows that more than anything in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight calls home get three straight connections with the answering machine. Finally, she leaves a message. Mom, Dad, it's me. I was wondering maybe about coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way and I'll, I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I'll understand. During the seven-hour bus ride, she's preparing a speech for her father. And when the bus comes to a stop in Traverse, the Traverse City Station, the driver announces the 15-minute stop. Fifteen minutes to decide her life. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect, but not one of the thousand scenes that had played out in her mind prepares her for what she sees. There, in the bus terminal, in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats, and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares out through the tears quivering in her eyes and begins her memorized speech. He interrupts her, Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. We'll be late. A big party is waiting for you at home. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, it says, In Him, Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished upon us. And in chapter 2, verse 8 of Ephesians, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. God's grace. God's grace. Aren't you grateful? In God's eyes, we were no different than that young lady. And through Jesus, he has welcomed us into his presence. We can come home. It's good to be there, isn't it?